Thank you, Al, and it is great to be back with uh, my church family today. My wife and I have um, just returned from uh, a 10-day global trip. We literally traveled around the world. We headed west, and we kept going west all the way around. First time in uh, 23 years that my wife and I have been able to go on a vision trip together, and uh, you can see her there. She was uh, a rock star overseas. Amazing how women, I encourage you to think about a vision trip, like she was able to connect with women, so much so Nate, who I was traveling with, said, Mark, can Sarah stay and you just go home? And so the answer to that was no. We were able to connect with um, a number of our partners in Southeast Asia, see what God is doing and how really the needle of unreached people groups is uh, being moved in some of these countries thanks to some partners and the investment that we have made uh, as a church. One particular man here, um, we went to a village, probably the poorest village I've ever been in. And we're talking one room Uh, bamboo huts, and this man came to faith in Christ years ago, brought the gospel to his village, and as we heard and and met with this uh, house church, uh, nearly every person in that house church of about 15 people came to faith in Christ because of this brother's testimony. Just an amazing story of God's grace and of his provision there. So I just want to remind you that when you give to our general fund, and when that money is moved over to missions, as it is every single week, when you give to the Christmas offerings as you have in the past, uh, those monies are well used to be able to spread the gospel. The Christmas offering that's in front of us for Brookside, I mean, it's amazing to see what um, our people in our church are able to do with the financial resources that... um, that you and I release. So let me just encourage you as you're thinking about that Christmas offering to be praying about how you could give and how you'd give generously. Now today we're in 1 Peter and we're coming to the end of chapter one. And this particular chapter now is wrapping up our understanding of what it means to be in exile. And we'll be back in 1 Peter in the first part of 2017. I can't wait to show you what 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3 talks about because in those chapters, Peter unpacks how to apply the concept of an exile to how you relate to your government, how to relate to your employer. What does it mean for husbands and wives to live together in a way that honors Christ and that platforms the beauty of what it means to be an exile? So we're going to look at that in uh, 2017. Today we're going to wrap up chapter one. And before I get into the text, just want to remind you about a couple of things that are coming up in the next number of weeks as far as the body life of this church. Next week is one of the most important Sundays all year. Sunday night we'll have a congregational meeting. If you're a member, we really need you to be there. We, we have this congregational meeting, this annual meeting, and in this meeting we do some of the most important things that as a congregation we do all year, like elect elders, um, elect deacons, uh, vote on our budget. We have some bylaw changes that we're suggesting. We also have a purchase of some property for the Fishers campus that we're going to be considering. So I really want you to be there next Sunday evening. In the morning here at North Indy, I'll be communicating where we're headed as a church in 2017. What are some of the things that are on the hearts and minds of our elders? So if you want to know where we're headed next Sunday morning in particular is important If you have family around during the Thanksgiving holiday, we'd love to have you come to a Thanksgiving Eve service. It'll be a small sort of family gathering. I'll be talking about the importance of gratitude and then how gratitude can malfunction. So that'll happen on the Wednesday evening, an hour or so of a service. You heard already, I'm sure, about our Christmas concert. I want to encourage you to be thinking about that and um, inviting someone to come with you. 
and then using that concert as an introduction to our church, get them in the building, and then have you use that as a chance to share the gospel, have them over to your house, meet with them for uh, maybe dinner, before or after. We, we want the concert to be a platform for you uh, to be able to share the good news about Christ. And then finally, we have a Christmas Eve service that's coming up on December the 24th. We have three different services. It'll be our main uh, worship gathering for that weekend. And we're gonna have a great opportunity this holiday season to reach out into our community and also to celebrate the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. So, number of things that are happening over the next number of weeks, I want you to be involved in them. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25 is our text today. And we come to the end of this chapter and Peter emphasizes something about what the internal community of the church is to be like. And the singular thing that he focuses on in these verses is the calling for this community of believers as exiles, this calling for us to love one another. So rather than thinking about an exile community as what you've run from, or the culture that's kind of changed around you, Peter now wants to focus our minds on what kind of community does this exile group of people really need to be? In other words, rather than looking at the culture and going, oh, the culture's falling apart, or oh, things got so difficult, or things are so challenging, or everything's changing around us, Peter wants us to turn our attention away from what's happening outside, and instead look inside, and ask ourselves the question, so what's so unique about this culture that the watching world would want to be a part of it? And how does the gospel shape a culture that somehow that culture is different? And the singular thing that should mark this culture of exiles and the thing that should mark our church, the thing that should mark your small group, the thing that should mark your home, is essentially the biblical concept of love. What Peter wants us to see is that the gospel shapes a community that is marked by pure and earnest love. In the midst of a hostile culture, in the midst of a changing culture, the idea is there is this group of people who are different. Not just in what they believe, they are different in that way, but they are different in how they treat one another and how they care for one another. So what I want you to do, we're gonna walk through this text, and I want you to think about how this concept of loving one another applies to our own church. I want you to think about what it means for you to be a member of this church, even about why you came this morning, and for that matter, even how you'll leave, and how you'll conduct yourself in your small group, to, to think what does it mean not just to attend a church, but what does it really mean to be the church? Now, this text has a command in the middle of it, verse 22b, and then it has two reasons on either side. So there's this wedged command in the middle. We're going to look at the command first, and then we're going to look at the reasons on the other side. So first, the command in verse 22b is simply this. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. After saying in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Hopefully you remember if you've studied with us in 1 Peter so far, that this is, this is the fourth command that Peter has given since verse 13. 
In verse 13, we heard him say, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you. So we talked about an exile mindset and how to, how to think like an exile. And then we, we saw in verse 15 that you are called to be holy, be holy in all your conduct. And a couple weeks ago, remember, we handed out some books at the end by J.C. Ryle about what it means to be holy and that I suggested to you that an exile community is worthless unless there's something different morally about that particular group of people. And then last week, Chris Beals helped you to understand how to not waste your exile and what it means in verse 17 to conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile, meaning that there's a respect for who God is and a respect for his righteousness. Now we come to this idea, this fourth command of what it means to love one, one another earnestly. And Peter envisions this exile community as a group of people who create this culture that people want to be brought into it. They want to be loved. And they want to be loved in a way that is so remarkable and so special and so unique that the people who are loved would say, why in the world do you love one another? Why do you love me this way? And the answer, of course, is the gospel. So, I don't know if you've been to church in a long time, you may be here the first time in, in, in forever, and what I hope that you'll see today is why this particular gathering of God's people together care for one another differently and how the person and work of Jesus creates this unique love. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope that you'll see this offering of love and think, man, I'd love to be a part of that. So, Peter first commands that this body of people love one another. The command to love is not a new concept in the scriptures. In fact, it's all throughout the New Testament. The, the church essentially is supposed to be a group of people who, who love one another. Throughout, throughout the New Testament, love is the, the center of gravity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the same way that, like in marriage, love is supposed to be the center of gravity for that marriage. I've just found this to be true in my own life, that when there's a beautiful, loving relationship between Sarah, my wife, and myself, I mean, things could be falling apart around me. Things could be difficult or challenging, but when my home becomes a refuge or a haven, it's sort of like we have our own little fortress from all the difficulties in life. And what Peter imagines is that the body of Christ is to be like that. Throughout the New Testament, love is to be the defining characteristic of people who understand the gospel of Jesus. Listen to a few texts. You may want to write some of these down, just the references, you can look them up later. John 13, 34 to 35. Here's what Jesus said. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us, a, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 1 Peter 4, 8, a text that we'll look at sometime in next year. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And then 1 John 4, Seven to eight. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he says this. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So it's pretty clear from these texts and a number of others that I could cite that the chief characteristic of the community of Christ, the, 
the chief characteristic of any group of people who claim that they know the gospel is this idea of love. In fact, I think you could go so far to say, and I think that there are texts in the Bible that say this, that a group of people that is not marked by love is a group of people who do not have a clear understanding or even possession of the gospel itself. So he says you are to love one another. That, that, those two words, one another, very important in the New Testament. Do you know that there are over 59 texts in the New Testament that make reference to some kind of one another command? The commands about one another serve as the new ethic as to what should characterize the New Testament community. You, you could really think of the one another commands as really the, the new law or the, the new mantra for the community of Christ, that the way in which we are to interact with one another is to be reflective of these one another commands. And the central one another command that the body of Christ is to emulate is this idea of loving one another. The thing that we must do together, beyond singing, beyond giving, beyond listening, the thing that we must do today is to love one another. So here's my question. Have you loved anybody this morning? You put your name tag on. Were you thinking, oh, I can't wait for everyone to know my name? <laughs> or do you think, I'm so glad other people have name tags on so I can know their name? Did you walk in thinking, no one talked to me? Or did you walk in thinking, I'm going to talk to a bunch of people? See, the difference in terms of the mentality is simply this. Have you come to this body in order simply to get what you must get? But have you come with the idea of, I'm here to love? Some of you saw somebody in the hallway, and you weren't so excited that you were coming across their path. And yet God calls you to love them. And this love is what defines and marks the body of Christ. Let me show this to you in another passage. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in the book of Colossians. Take your Bible and go over to Colossians chapter three or grab your phone and just type in Colossians three, verses 12 to 14. Colossians three, 12 to 14. So this text, I think, proves exactly what I'm saying is a great cross-reference to what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 1. So Colossians 3, verse 14, or 12, beginning 12, 13, and 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So he said, here's, here's the things that you're to put on. Put on a compassionate heart, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So these are the things that are to characterize a gospel-saturated community. Things like meekness and patience and humility and bearing with one another. And then verse 14 says this, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the idea is that love is so central to the body of Christ that it binds everything together. That love is this vital and central aspect of what it means to be a community of people shaped by the gospel. Now, go back to 1 Peter 1. Peter says that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What does it mean to have a pure heart? Well, essentially it means that these are a people whose hearts have been cleansed by the work of Jesus. You see, here's the, here's the connection, and we'll see this more in a moment, between a loving community and a gospel-centered community. That the gospel creates a pure heart. So if, if you don't know what that means, it means this, that the Bible tells us that we're all sinners, and that in order for us to 
be right in our relationship with God, we have to deal with our sin and that Jesus comes to pay the atonement for our sins and that by receiving Christ, God not only forgives us of our sins, but he also cleanses our hearts. He changes something inside of us that we couldn't change in and of ourselves such that now if you know Christ, you have a pure heart and then out of that pure heart now comes a different kind of ethic, a different way of treating people, a different kind of love. So Peter says we're to love one another for a, from a pure heart, that, that people who have been loved by God are able to really love one another. I mean, after all, what in the world would prompt a person to be more concerned about another person than themselves? What would motivate someone to love someone else in a selfless manner? This is, this is why the Bible says that believers are only to marry believers. Because if you try and have a relationship with someone in a marriage, and yet you both have very different hearts, you're coming at selflessness from very different angles. What Peter is arguing here is that people who have been loved in the way that comes to them through the grace of Christ, it's those people that are able to truly love one another. At least, that's the way they should be. And then he says, we're to love one another earnestly. You know, when I first read that, ver that word, I thought, well, I know what that means. It means continuously, it means constantly, it means eagerly. But when I dug into it, I found something really interesting. Do you know that this word earnestly is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 22 in references to Jesus' agony in prayer? The idea is that Jesus was earnestly praying. He was agonizing in prayer. And that's the text that describes him sweating like drops of blood. So it's the way in which Jesus was praying, this, this earnestness, this commitment, this, this sort of agonizing reality. Jesus was intensely praying. And so Peter says, we are to love one another in an intense sort of way. In fact, there's another passage that echoes the same thing, Acts chapter 12, where it says that the people of God were praying on behalf of Peter when he was in prison and they were earnestly praying for him. So it earnestly then is a word that is marked by passion. I mean, our mission as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. But can I just tell you that one of the central ways that we express if we really get that mission, we ignite a passion to follow Jesus if we passionately love one another. That means when you come together and we gather on Sunday morning or you gather in your small group, you don't come just sort of like, well, I'm coming, hope something happens to me today. I'm coming just hoping I get a blessing or I hope I hear something that's encouraging to me. Like if that's how you woke up and came to church today, you need to reset immediately. I hope you leave today and you walk out slowly and you look to talk to people and you begin to pour into people so that your mentality is not, I'm just here to get, to get, to get, but instead I'm here to pour my life into the lives of others. In fact, I think that if we don't passionately love one another, that we're probably not passionately following Jesus. For example, some of you have, well, let me put it this way, there's a difference with how you go to Thanksgiving meals than how you shop at Home Depot. Like, what has Thanksgiving meal to do with Home Depot? Let me, let me explain what it has to do. It has everything to do with it. And they don't sell turkey at Home Depot. Here's the deal. When I'm going to Home Depot, I go there because I need something. Like I don't walk around looking at tile and 
PVC pipe and wall thingamadoos, switches and sconces. I, I, don't, I don't window shop at the Home Depot. I go, I get my stuff, and I leave. If I see you at Home Depot, we're gonna have a conversation, but it's gonna be really short, because I gotta get electrical cord and go, right? You know what I'm saying? So I'm gonna go get it, and then I'm gonna go. But you don't do that with a Thanksgiving meal. At least you shouldn't, but you won't get invited back. So you don't walk in, like, where's the turkey? All right, let's get it, all right, let's go. Like, that's, you're gonna linger, you're gonna talk, you're gonna roll your eyes at your weird uncle. I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna do all the things that you do in a family environment, but with the Home Depot, it's very different. You're gonna go in, you're gonna get out. Some of you treat church like it's the Home Depot. Let's get up, let's get here as quick to the start time as possible, and some of you, you're late all the time, right? We, we have facial recognition, we know who you are. We don't, not yet. You hardly think about it the night before, you get in, you find your seat, you head down, listen, you leave, you run out, and success to you is, we sang a few songs that I liked, I heard a sermon that touched my heart, and nobody really talked to me. Listen friend, that is not church. I don't know what that is, but that is not the idea of what it means to be a gospel-centered exile community. The idea is that we love one another earnestly. So my question is this, what is your orientation when you think about church? Is it that I'm here to get, or are you here in order to love people? And you may have a story where people burned you, and I get that. We all have people like that in our life, but some of you are still kind of in that church recovery program. But the fact of the matter is, church isn't church unless you're being poured out into the lives of other people. And what Peter says here is we are to love one another earnestly. It also means that the gospel-shaped community means that we love people who are different than us, such that the world would look at our body of believers and go, what in the world? You have people who have different walks of life, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different tastes, different ages. How does that all work? And the answer is because we all know Jesus. And so that the church is marked not by some homogeneous picture, but rather it's marked by a Savior who saved all of us and brought us into the body, namely the person and the work of Jesus. So the idea of the church is that we care for people, we love one another, we care for people who have problems. So if you're here and you're like, I got big problems, I got news for you, we all have big problems. And the church is supposed to be a group of people who lean into problems, not lean away, who agonize with one another and even agonize with hard people. Peter is suggesting here is that an exile community is to be shaped by an earnest love that comes from a pure heart and then that exile community is somehow a really unique and special place. What Peter is doing is trying to shift our focus as he thinks about what it means to be an exile to not be thinking about the community that we've all left or the community that's left us but rather to think about what is the internal reality of that community supposed to look like. And you know what's crazy? This text was written some 2,000 years ago in a completely different culture, in a completely different environment, in a completely different political structure. 
And you can land this text and this idea about what it means to be a Christian community. You can put this in Southeast Asia. You can put this in Europe. You can put this in the Western Hemisphere. You can put this in the United States. You can put it on the West Coast, the East Coast. You can put it in 2016. You can put it on 1916. And the fact of the matter is, is there is this enduring reality that the exile community remains intact because of their commitment to the gospel and to love one another. And you'll see in a moment, it doesn't matter what political realities are going on, what cultural realities are going on, what economic realities are going on. There is this enduring exile community that is marked by love. So the call to one another then transcends time, circumstances, ethnicity, national identity. God calls us to be a body marked by loving one another. Now there's two reasons for this. And, and Peter identifies on the front end and in the back end two reasons. The first is that this was the purpose of the gospel in the first place. And then secondly, this relates to the word and its ability to persevere in our lives. So go back up to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So what Peter is saying is this, the gospel is there not just to save you from your sins, but the gospel is there in order to produce this brotherly love. In fact, the tense in verse 22 in the original language is a perfect tense, which means something happened in the past that has incredible implications right now in your lives. His point is that you've experienced a spiritual transformation. You've experienced a spiritual purification, and that purification has implications in how you treat one another. In other words, the gospel didn't come just to save you from your sins and just so you know where you would go when you die, although both of those things are part of the gospel. The gospel comes in order to do all of those things and then create a community that's so radically different, that's marked by brotherly love. He says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That phrase, obedience to the truth, means simply that a person has come to faith in Christ. It means they have come to agree with who Jesus is. They agree to the call to repentance. They agree that they're a sinner. And then he says, for a sincere brotherly love. The word for always means in the Bible that what's just said now has a result, so this purification of your souls results in, and the purpose of it is for this brotherly love to continue. So the idea is that as vital as faith is in its embracing of the gospel, so love is also vital in validating the gospel. Faith is how a person embraces the gospel, but love is one of the ways that we know that the gospel is really present. In other words, I'm on safe ground here when I make this rather bold statement. You can tell me that you know Jesus, but if you don't love people, you don't really know Jesus. Listen to 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. I didn't say that, the Bible said that. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother also. 
One of the things that our elders are working on is how do we connect our elders in terms of shepherding to love and care for our people more effectively. And one of the reasons we're trying to do that more effectively is that we believe that loving one another and caring for one another isn't an aspect of the gospel. It's central to the fruit of what the gospel is all about. So therefore, love is not an optional part of the community. Love instead is a vital part of what the gospel is because it creates this brotherly love. So the gospel empowers love. And then secondly, so that's the first one, then we have the command in the middle. Then at the end here, we have this reference to the words perseverance. So on the one hand, gospel creates love. On the other hand, what sustains love? In other words, how do you How do you keep loving when there are hard people in your life? And all of us have them. How do you how do you keep loving people in your small group that are that are difficult? Somebody says something, you're like, oh brother. How do you keep loving and not make that face? How do you care for one another? How do you how do you ask somebody, hey, how are you doing? And you know what's gonna happen. They're gonna go on and on and on and on. And you've tried it. You're, how are you doing? And you run away, right? You ask the question, but you don't stay long enough to hear the answer. Well, how do you, how do you keep a love, or this matter, how, how do you love one another when the culture is decaying around you? Well, look at verse 23. Peter says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So what's the assurance? The assurance here is this. You love People because of the supernatural work that God has done within you. Spiritual exiles have been born again by an imperishable seed. So Peter uses a birth analogy here in order to describe what has happened to these people. That a God-ordained miracle has happened. They have been born again, and part of what it means to be born again is that they love in ways that would have been impossible for them prior to coming to faith in Christ. They are new creatures, and because of that newness, they not only have new beliefs, but they also have new loves. And central to this supernatural birth is the word of God. They were born, it says, through the living and abiding word. Peter uses these two words to describe the Bible in order to help us understand that the word here that is meant is more than just content and more than just specific words and phrases, that the word does something supernatural in us, and the assurance that we can keep loving is the fact that loving people is not dependent solely on our ability, but rather on God's ability to help keep us loving. And that's why Peter quotes Isaiah 40. This text All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. That was written at a time when Israel was in a Babylonian exile. They were exiles, and essentially what Isaiah is saying is the Babylonian empire, it's like grass. Oh, it seems all strong, it seems 
powerful. It says it's glory like the flower of grass. God looks down, he sees Babylon, he's like, that's like grass to me. The, the, the glory of it, it's like the flower of the field. And that's why he says the grass wither and the flower falls. Meaning that kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Kings got, get, get seated on thrones and kings are taken off their thrones. Periods of history come, periods of history go. And what is the thread that's woven through all of human history? What is the thing that's woven through all sorts of kingdoms? And what Peter is saying is this. Show me a period in church history. I can show you an exile community who found the way to live with one another and to love one another because it is the living and abiding word of God that is the preserving agent. The word of the Lord remains forever. The world's culture is like grass. It'll wither, it'll fail. But the word of the Lord will be the preserving agent in the lives of the people in the community. They can love one another earnestly despite the pressures around them because there is something more powerful that is empowering their lives and their actions. And that is why Peter then ends this text by saying, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. He's saying you're a part of a historical movement where the the word of God is the preserving agent, and as a result, this exile community can not only survive, it can thrive. So what do we do with this? What are some applications? Let me put a few handles on this. The first is this. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I am so glad that you're here, and my hope is that this text, along with some of the things that I'm saying, will help you to understand that what is offered to you in the person and work of Jesus is a transformation that is so deep and so miraculous that it changes what you love and it changes why you love people. What I offer to you in the gospel is a change of your heart. Not a change of circumstances, not a change physically, but a change at the core of who you are such that Jesus comes and takes control of the very essence of who you are. It's the same you on the outside, but it's so, such a different you on the inside. And if you've not crossed the line and become a follower of Jesus, my call to you would be this. Aren't you weary of trying to find community and love in all the wrong places? Your heart keeps going to the wrong things. The problem isn't in the things. The problem is in a heart that's running after the wrong things. And God created a space in your soul for him. And you're never gonna be satisfied until Jesus fills that place. An early church father put it this way. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Secondly, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, this text reminds us that the single most important fruit that should characterize our church is brotherly love. And here I would just ask you this question, how do you think we are doing with that? How are you doing with that? We ought not assume that just because there's a number of people who gather here on the Lord's day that we're actually fulfilling that call of brotherly love. We should think through, what does it mean to love one another? Like, what does it mean to love one another today? When's the last time you told someone in this church, man, I'm so glad you're here. I love you. You're my brother or sister in Christ. When was the last time that those words even crossed your mind or heart or came out of your mouth? Third, this text encourages us to keep loving one another even when it's difficult. 
Whether it's a conflict that you're working through or a marriage that's struggling, a small group with some challenges or just really unique people or whatever it is, we are called to keep loving one another. And when that gets difficult and we wonder, how can I do this anymore? The answer is we do this because of God's supernatural work in us. It's not up to us. It's God by his spirit who does it through us as we rely on the living and abiding word. And then finally, my heart aches for some of you to know what it means to be in community and to be loved by that community. You come to this church, but the reality is you, you're all alone. If you weren't here for a number of weeks, it would be unlikely that many people would know. And when crisis or tragedy hits, you've got no one to come around you and hold you and help you to follow after Jesus. And I just wanna encourage you, like life isn't supposed to be that way. Christianity isn't supposed to be that way. And I wanna encourage you to take a step in community direction to be able to realize, look, part of what it means to live out the gospel is that I've got a group of people whom I'm pouring into, and those people are pouring into me. You see, being in exile means that the gospel creates this compelling countercultural community. That there's this group of people who have been born again, but God's changed their hearts. They love the Bible and it sustains them, and then they have the opportunity to love one another out of the overflow of both the gospel and the word of God. And friends, the world needs to see that kind of community. And we need that kind of community. To be in exile means that love and the gospel have shaped us. As we close this morning, I wanna show you a video. It's of some folks in our church named Glenn and Nancy Just. For a number of years, they served with crew and Nancy was diagnosed recently with a rare form of liver cancer and she's been given three to six months to live. And I want you to see the beauty of the small group of people who have come around them and what it means to really live out earnest biblical love together. I want you to watch this. Nancy, <laughs> I remember one of the first times I met her, she, basically like jumped off the couch and grabbed her Bible and was like, I love Jesus. <laughs> she can just say real things and be super down to earth and then yeah, remind herself of truth. The foundation of our small group is God's word. It's not what I think, it's not what I feel. It's ultimately, what does God's word say? If I'm in a quiet time and a verse strikes me up, we'll text each other and I'll hear back, I didn't sleep well last night because I was worried about that. Thank you for sharing that word. I mean, that God would use his word to help us encourage one another through this. This is one more way that God is in the midst of this. A misconception that we can all have is that we sort of try on small groups and if we don't automatically click with them or if there isn't some sense of natural intimacy, then we leave. But that's really not what biblical community is about. When you join a small group, it definitely has to be an intentional choice that you make. The people that invited us said, well, you just so you know, there's some stuff going on and it might be a little messy. And we thought, 
there's stuff going on with us too. I mean, we all bring our stuff and nobody has it all figured out. And just that we could already come in to a group that's already real and we could just be real. We choose to let our masks down even though it doesn't always feel safe. But in letting the mask down and in being vulnerable, then that frees them up to be vulnerable and you end up with best friends that you never maybe would have thought. That's the trade-off, is as willing as you're willing to be vulnerable, you have a family of fellow believers that are there to help. We thank you for the closeness in this group and just the ability to share insecurities. Experiencing life together in the ordinary is where you really get to know people as well. We started doing this pizza movie night on Friday nights, you know, and just to spend time just having fun and playing spoons together. Now that we have been through a couple years of Lyme disease and then now this terminal cancer, seeing how our friends, our small group, the beauty of how much they love us. Mm -hmm. uh, they made sure the house got clean. They made sure there were groceries in the refrigerator. They took kids to school. They brought meals. They just loved on us. Serving requires giving of something, but I feel like I have given pittance compared to what I've gotten from them. We try and sit together and worship together, and they weep with us. They shed tears as we worship together because they understand even what it means to soon be in heaven for Nancy and what it means to trust the Lord in that process. I don't want to cry, but walking through this with them, I am just sometimes so mind blown by the way that they trust and have faith. Having to raise four kids as a single dad, but knowing that the body of Christ is already with us and will be with us, you know, as I move forward with the kids. There's just been this reassurance that Glenn and Nancy have that God's in control and, and he has a plan for, for all of this.